When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell been a minute but he's back the most frequent guest on the herd tell program michael siegel that's dr michael siegel to you uh bon vivant of the universe uh gazer of the stars writer of all things covid for ordinary-times.com and maker of viral videos uh how are you sir i'm not bad how are you doing we're doing good um let's start right there with uh what's right over your shoulder there that is a big chunk of moon stuff i'm assuming we're going to call that an asteroid perhaps am i using the right terminology here or? uh this is correct uh the this is a graphic uh artist concept of the dart mission the double asteroid redirection test and uh what this is going to do is it's going to rendezvous with two asteroids orbiting each other and literally crash into one and see how we can redirect it. And the idea is to test the technology we would use to redirect uh, asteroid if it were coming towards us and uh, potentially having an impact. And this uh, just got in the news recently, there was an asteroid discovered in January, about 70 meters in size, so a Tunguska sized asteroid that uh, initially was projected to hit the earth in uh, July of 2023. But now we have a little bit more data and it looks like it's going to miss us. So. Uh, rather topical for what's going on in uh, the world of astronomy right now. Now, we know we consistently have in the news uh, these near-miss asteroids who keep teasing us but never seem to deliver. As we know from the highly scientific documentary Armageddon, uh, the only way to solve these things is to send oil drillers and Bruce Willis into space and blow them up with a nuclear warhead that magically didn't have to be uh, programmed. But that kind of stuff isn't really real. I'm teasing you because I know how much you hate the Armageddon movie, and I love it so much uh, because Michael Bay is the great filmmaker of our time. But uh, now that we've trolled that out, uh, why do we keep discussing this? I know it gets pressed because everybody's like, oh, an asteroid's coming towards us. They always miss because you guys actually pretty much know years in advance that they're going to miss and pretty pretty much by how much and that sort of thing. What do you think the fascination is with this? Is it just the end of times existence stuff or what is it? It's, it's fairly dramatic, and if, a, if we did discover an asteroid were on its way to hit the Earth, that would be a, a fairly large news development. Uh, the British press in particular seems to really like to focus on these, you know, this asteroid is passing us in our orbit. Well, asteroids pass us in our orbit all the time. That's not news. 
Um, but really, in the last 25 years, NASA has put in a tremendous amount of effort to identify near-Earth asteroids, ones that cross our orbit, and to start developing the technology if we needed to deflect one uh, to basically prevent the, uh, at, at best, a massive catastrophe, and at worst, the uh, end of human civilization, if you had a really big one. So uh, I think that's the, the fascination, that this is one of those Armageddon scenarios that is not scientifically unrealistic. Asteroids have hit the Earth. Asteroids have done enormous damage. And uh, it is, thankfully, one that we can probably do something about. What One of the things I find fascinating when I read your stuff about you know astrophysics and astronomy is we are so stinking small in the universe. Like we're we're nothing. We're we're sand on the beach when it comes to the crater universe, right? But at the same time, there really is some stuff we can do here. We can explore, you know, we've got Voyager out past the solar system now. We got the mission you just talked about. We're gonna crash into an asteroid on purpose. That's pretty cool. This is pretty cool stuff for the species. But I don't know that did the space race, did we just get spoiled? Are we just not paying attention? Because this seems like we've really accomplished some things here as the human race. And we just almost seem like we're bored with it. I guess. And it's one of those things where today's wonder is tomorrow's standard. You know, you think about the things we deal with every day. Uh, we get on a plane and we complain because it's late. And 100 years ago, people would say, oh, my God, you're flying through the air. And so these things that are amazing one day become routine the next day. And the Apollo mission, they talked about this a lot, how everyone paid attention to Apollo 11 when it landed on the moon. And by Apollo 13, they couldn't even get primetime TV because it was it was old hat. So, and in some ways that's good. Space has become part of our lives. It's become something that we're kind of used to and so forth. But in, it, you, know, you do sort of wish that people would experience that wonder that we had the first time we did things and the second time we did things. Yeah, speaking of technology that we take for granted, um, just the fact that we can put satellites in orbit. And now we've talked to you before about Elon Musk and the Starlink system where he's putting thousands and thousands of satellites in orbit, which is a bone of contention. We'll talk about some other time because it's in a lower orbit and it's in the way of other things we're trying to do. But that hit the news recently because they sent a bunch of uh, Starlinks to Ukraine. We understand the war's going on. We've been covering it extensively. Is technology like Starlink, like, you know, private satellite networks, for lack of a better way of explaining it, into a crisis zone to keep the Internet going? How does that development fall for you? Because this is well within your bailiwick of, you know, the, the stars and the uh, astrophysics stuff. Do you see this as a solution to a problem that we could actually do things like the Starlink into an, an active shooting war zone? Well, I think in this particular case, it, it is very important. I mean, in the old Soviet Union, they strongly believed that they could run people like they were blast furnaces, basically, that you could take a child from its mother at two months, get them in the education system, control all this, have the state control all the schools, have state control all the media and control what they thought and make them perfect automatons for the state. And let's remember, Putin's an old Soviet guy, so he believes this. And that didn't work. People, the mind, human mind is too flabby and vague for that to work. And Putin is still in that mode of thinking that he can control events through propaganda, through information. And you talked about this with John McCumber uh, on the previous show about you know, the information war and so forth and propaganda. You know, we've sort of overblown their capabilities, you know, because 
Russia influenced, you know, we said Russia influenced the 2016 election. That's why Trump got elected, even though there were much larger issues than that. Or Russia influenced Brexit. And that's why Brexit happened, even though there were much larger issues at stake. And I think that the media noise on that sort of thing has blown up his capabilities. And we've seen those capabilities of controlling the narrative, controlling the propaganda exposed by the fact that the Ukrainians can counter him with an ordinary citizen with a cell phone. And that's got a stick in his craw that he can't control the flow of information. So anything we can do to keep the flow of information free, to keep that information flowing out of Ukraine so that he can't cut them off, he can't isolate, it, he can't control the narrative is good. Now, I have mixed feelings on Starlink, as you know, because those satellites are low. There's a lot of them. They interfere with astronomy and so forth. There's a danger of space debris and so forth. But having that system where it's the satellites are so numerous, even if he wanted to, he couldn't destroy them all. And so that, that does, in this particular case, have that use of keeping the inflow of information free, of allowing even small people with limited resources to counter his multi-billion ruple information operation to the point where Ukraine's controlling the narrative. And let's put those two things together, talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend. Let's put those two things together, because one thing that I, you know, I'm a history guy, first and foremost, in my heart when I try to study current events, because I think that's the best guide we have going forward. It's not perfect, but it's the guardrails to keep things in between. This is one of those things where I don't know that people put the two things together, that all this technological explosion, how much of this technology came out of space exploration and the space program. And that, like they, they joke about things like microwave coming out of the space race that just changed the world. But this sort of stuff, Starlink, uh, cellular phones came out of late World War II. People probably don't realize that that's where that came from. Uh, this stuff all happens in a sequence. And our space exploration programs and our, you know, that's kind of been the bleeding edge of science in a lot of ways. That's led to a lot of this, hasn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. That one of the things I, I tell students is that, you know, when you take an astronomy course or a chemistry course or a biology course or an engineering course, these are not separate buildings. They're all different wings of the same building. And the things you learn in one discipline can inform the things that we learn in other disciplines. Engineering has advanced a lot from astronomy uh, and chemistry and so forth. These all interact. And so the more knowledge you have in general, the more that's going to flow in unexpected ways. There was an argument during the Cold War that classifying technology hurt us more than it hurt the Soviets because preventing the free flow of scientific information slowed progress down. Whereas if you had free flow of information, our society, because it was open, because it had more freedom, could have a technological pace that Soviet Union could never match because they were strictly controlling the flow of information. And that's the thing about science. It flows in unexpected ways. There are discoveries made in one field that have relevance to other fields. And just to give one example that I've been involved with, we developed a part of an instrument for a spectrograph in South America that the manufacturer said, hey, you know what? This new technology we developed, this would be really useful for fighter planes to have much better and bigger heads-up displays. And so, you know, we think of technology as you want to develop a cell phone and you take steps A, B, and C there. It's not that linear. You take steps A and B to this technology, you take C and D to this technology, and someone sees those two papers and puts those together in a new way and discovers something new. And while we're talking about the Russians, uh, talking to Michael Siegel, 
there was a lot of complaining over the last, uh, what, since the end of the shuttle program that we were way too reliant on Russia's space program instead of building up our own. Now, that's changed some because we have SpaceX and other things. Uh, NASA's moribund Artemis program, which is kind of a cluster, but they are at least doing something now with Constellation and that sort of stuff. They have threatened, uh, the Russian Space Agency has basically threatened that there's going to be no more free rides with them because of the war and the reparations that we're trying to get back from them because of the war of aggression. Is this going to be kind of a wake-up call of, all right, maybe we shouldn't be in the space business with the Russians, especially with their current leadership, even though we've been relying on them in the past, where it was like, okay, we know they're not great people, but we can do space with them. Is that calculation changed now? Um, I think NASA and the space agencies are trying to keep this as far from the war as possible to try to maintain the spirit of cooperation in space. But certainly developing SpaceX, developing Artemis, that's going to give us capabilities where we don't depend on another country for this. And, you know, that's always been a possibility that something, some political issue would come up and Russia could cut off our access to space. And having those capabilities where they can't make that threat, I think is not only good for us as a country and and so forth, it's good for the spirit of cooperation in space, that it makes it so that making those threats is empty and there's no point in making them. Do you think that, because um, obviously SpaceX has is, is got a heavy lift thing they're working on now. They're talking about, uh, they're starting to talk about plans for bringing the ISS down sometime in the not too distant future. Do you think that cooperation will just kind of naturally grow apart anyway, even without the current crisis? Because like you said, we just seem to be having some disparative things here where, you know, SpaceX doesn't need to talk to the Russians to do their stuff. Do you think this is just kind of a natural evolution on top of the geopolitics involved? It's hard to say. I mean, China just put up their own space station. And so they've shown that, you know, one country can do it. It's certainly better when we have cooperation. And I think that uh, NASA and in particular has seen that the space program as sort of a way of establishing detente. You know, when they had the Apollo Soyuz mission, for example, showing that Americans and, and the Soviets could work together in space. Um so it's it's very hard to know how things are going to go. I mean, we have no idea what the political future of Russia is and so forth. I think that given the challenges and the difficulties and the expense, the more international cooperation you have, the better. But at some point, if a country is a bad actor, you may have to just go it alone or with countries that are not bad actors. Yeah, I'm talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend, our stargazer par excellence at Ordinary-Times.com and elsewhere. He's also a teacher. When we come back, we're going to talk some more space. We're going to talk about his Thursday throughput feature. He's got some cool stuff in there, uh, including interview with the vampire through the stars. That's going to be fun to discuss. Lots more with Michael Siegel when we come back on Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. Uh, he looks at the stars for a living and then writes about it in ordinary-times.com for us. He also makes YouTube videos about movies. Okay, you've done some funky videos about astronomy and pop culture. Uh, you've done romantic comedies. Uh, you've done Don't Look Up. Uh, you've done historical dramas. Interview with the Vampire. Now, I you're going to have to help me with this one a little bit. Uh, of course, the Anne Rice book everybody knows about. Uh, Tom Cruise playing a vampire, which some people would argue was Tom Cruise being typecast, but we could get into that at some other time. But 
What in the world does interview with the vampire have to do with astronomy? Well, you'll have to watch the video, but there is one scene in the movie that has some bad astronomy in it that has a factual error. And uh, I was just thinking about it the other day and I was like, oh, this would make a nice little video. And really, I use these videos you know, to talk about movies because I love movies, but also to sometimes talk about the scientific principles involved and talk about how astronomy works, how we measure things, how we calculate things, how stars work and so forth. So often it's just a vehicle to uh, you know, give a, a sort of painless uh, lesson in astronomy, you know, sort of, sort of just sort of some of the basic stuff that, uh, that we take for granted. Uh, just a, a little hint to your audience in this case, it's why you can't buy coconuts and other tropical fruits in Paris. Does it have anything to do with the French smoking underhanded? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. Uh, you make an interesting point, though, because we think of astronomy as kind of a specialized study, and it is. It's very intricate, astrophysics even more so, because you're, you're looking out past our planet and all that sort of thing. But one thing, the reason I like you doing that is because there is a lot of stuff in astronomy that just filters into everyday life and everything from, you know, astrology to how we keep time to how we keep calendars. Some of the earliest science we have recorded human history is people looking at the stars and trying to figure out why in the world the sun moves like that. It's just kind of ingrained in the human existence, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, just the days of the week are named after the five planets and the sun and the moon, the five classical planets. Uh, it's a little more obvious if you speak a romance language where the names are similar, but that's where it comes from. The months of the year were originally designed around the lunar calendar, the phases of the moon. The year is designed around the sun moving around the earth. You know, these are things that we sort of take for granted. Astronomy was the most practical science when it was invented. It was a way to tell time. It was a way to know seasons. It was a way to know when to harvest your crops. It was a way to navigate and find your way over the surface of the globe. It's only in relatively modern times that it's become this sort of esoteric thing dealing with distant galaxies and so forth. But ultimately, it's sort of ingrained into our culture and into the rhythms of life that we experience every day. What do you see the future of um, astrophysics and astronomy, the science? Because we've been talking a lot about science, but we've been talking about Earth-based sciences. We've been talking about coronavirus. We've been talking about things like this. Where's the future going with that? Because it seems like we're kind of we're, we're pushing the technological limit. Uh, you've talked about the new uh, space telescope that just went up and how much diff- it's different, but it's also a whole lot better than the old Hubble was. We keep pushing the technological edge, though. But do you see like big leaps coming or are we in a period of time where it's going to be incremental process? Where do you see the future of astronomy and astrology here in the next few years? Uh, well, the future of astrology, I can't talk about, but the... Uh, My fault, I said astrology and not astronomy. That's the, the astrology is that thing in the back of the TV. Now I'm dating myself. The back of the TV guide used to have astrology <laughs> in it. Astronomy, I apologize, sir. Go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, I, I just couldn't resist the joke. Uh, astronomy, the thing is, every time we think we're to a point of incremental change where we've solved most of the mysteries, we discover that we don't know we discover something new that revolutionizes things. One of the things I tell my class is the history of astronomy is a 6,000 year history of the universe telling us we don't know half as much as we think we do. When I was a graduate student, we thought we had this cosmology thing, you know, the shape and structure and content of the universe sorted. And then we discovered dark energy and we still don't know what dark energy is, even though it dominates the universe. Uh, we used to think that the solar system that we have was a model for what solar systems would be like. And then we discovered that they have infinite variety 
and so forth. So science has a way of telling you, oh, I think we've got it all figured out. We're just tidying up around the edges. And then you just drop off a cliff because it was something that you hadn't considered. There is right now a growing tension in our cosmological models, our models of how the universe as a whole that may reveal a whole new branch of physics. We don't know yet, or it may just be um, observational error. We're still uh, arguing about that and figuring that out. I think the big thing for the 21st century as we go forward for the next few decades is trying to find the evidence of life outside of our own Earth, both with, within our solar system to see if Mars had life early in its history or Europa has had life at some point, and looking at extrasolar planets. Our technology is improving to the point where we may be able to look at the atmospheres of planets in other star systems and see what's there and get a read on how common life may be in the universe. This was a question that if you'd said we had a solution 30, year ago, 30 years ago, people would have laughed at you. I don't think anyone's laughing anymore. They think that this is something that is within our reach within the next few decades. Now, let's define that, though, because I because I read you and I actually try to get into the scientific side of this so I can keep up with you and not be a total idiot on it. Um, when we're talking about defining life, though, when I when I say life in the universe, everybody starts thinking, you know, some humanoid type of alien species. But scientifically, y'all are looking at building blocks of life. You're looking at uh, simple bacteria. You're looking at simple cell structures. You're looking for foundations of water particles. This is kind of the stuff you're actually looking for. And there's a high probability that you can find it out there. That's why you're so hopeful of it. It's not we're going to find little green men. It's we're going to find trace evidence. Is that a good way to term it, maybe, of this stuff? It's, it's more than that. It's that if we were to find that, say, Mars early in its history had the beginnings of life, and then it died out. If we were to find that, for example, there were lots of planets in the universe that had atmospheres that were conducive to life, that would make the, you know, first of all, indicate we weren't alone, but also make the possibility of little green men more possible. There are 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And based on our current knowledge, we estimate there are tens to hundreds of billions of planets that are in the habitable zones of their stars. Getting a handle on how many of those planets are actually habitable, getting a handle on how many act may actually host life, gives us the information we need to know how likely or unlikely it is that we are alone in the universe. At, at some, is it just the basic theory though that like almost every somewhere in the universe there's always going to be those basic building blocks, or is there specific places you're looking? You're talking about those zones of habitability. Is there and is it one of those things where well maybe we need to redefine what we call basis of life for the outside of that zone or is it just in that zone? Mainly what we're looking for are things in that zone since that's where we know life can occur. What we call the Goldilocks zone, the the area around a star where the temperature of the planet would be conducive to having liquid water. But certainly uh, at some point we will have to expand our definition. We found that even life on Earth can exist in fairly extreme environments at the bottoms of ocean vents and very acidic water that we ourselves could not live in. And so we are certainly going to be looking to expand that definition as we go forward. But right now we try to look for life that's similar to us because that's the easiest to identify. So once again, we're coming back to like you talked with the dark matter though, is so much as science is trying to figure out what we don't know about what we don't know, isn't it? Yep. The, the, there's, there's stuff you know you don't know, and there's stuff you don't know you don't know. And the stuff you don't know you don't know tends to be much larger. Speaking of things we do and don't know, you've been doing all the COVID work for us at Ordinary-Times.com, talking to Michael Siegel. 
Uh, we're two years into this thing. Where do we go from here? We just had a Super Bowl where nobody was masked. Everybody took their vaccine and they had a wonderful time. We just had a state of the union with all the leadership of the country unmasked, vaccinated, tested with a few notable exceptions that wanted to get social media attention for not getting their 30 second swab. Where are we going? Because now they want another $30 billion to inject into COVID stuff. I think the mask discussion is pretty much over. Schools have listed it for at least the time being. I, I think just the population's done with it. What's the next step from where you're sitting? Because you've actually done the science on this stuff, not just the thrown around term science. You actually read it. You've been pretty measured on this thing. Where, where do you think we stand at it as of you know the beginning of March here in 2022? I, I think we are at a point where we're accepting that COVID's going to be around. And so the latest indication is that three shots of the vaccine or two shots and then a COVID infection provide long-term protection, maybe for years. And so that plus maybe a booster every year means that most people will have pretty significant resistance. And at that point, you start asking, what are the trade-offs? You know, is masking, is social distancing worth it in terms of the prevention of death and suffering? And I think we've gotten to the point where we're saying, no, it's, it's not worth that. But I think going forward, we need to be better prepared for if a variant comes back for other diseases. There are other COVID variants out there. There are other coronaviruses out there. There's Ebola out there and so forth. And so I think while there are criticisms I could make of the Biden administration's response, I think what was articulated in the, in the State of the Union of kind of looking forward and having more testing, especially genomic tracing, so we can detect new variants early and keep track of what's going on with COVID. So we know if it's getting deadlier, if it's getting less deadly, how fast it's spreading, what the risk assessment is. I think that's the way to go uh, to move forward. And there's always, you know, people say, well, they're thinking about the politics. Well, there's always a political calculation in, in pandemic response. If you know, we were not going to do what China did, where we welded people into their rooms. That's just not going to happen in a country like the United States. So already there's a political calculus there. There's always that political calculus of what the country will put up with, how much damage you're doing to the economy, what trade-offs you're willing to make in terms of the negative effects of your prevention measures versus how many diseases and deaths you're preventing. With so many people vaccinated, with the dominant variant being less deadly, with now emerging from cold and flu season where people can go outside and be less exposed, I think that they are making the calculation that, okay, now's time to ease off, take it easy, take a breath, look back, see what we did right, what we did wrong, and plan for the future. And just to put a bow on this with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, we always appreciate him being on Hurt Tell. That's why he's been on more than any other living human being, not just because he's one of the smartest men in the galaxy. Um, to put a bow on the COVID conversation for just for right now, though, is uh, you are on the academic side of the house. You know how to read all them academic papers that everybody else throws around online without actually reading. Uh, just for the common person, the common man, do you see on the academic side of this and the government research side of this, have they learned any lessons? Have they changed anything meaningful, do you think, for the next time? I think that they have. We have learned some lessons. The Probably the biggest lesson we've learned is that we need much better monitoring of what's going on, much better tracking, not just of infections, but of variants so that we can keep track of them, know when they're going on, know what we need to do. We need a much more proportional response so that we know, all right, these are the rules when there's a lot of infections. These are the rules when there's not as many infections. 
and so forth. You know, and it's hard to know what COVID's going to do. You can't predict mutations or variants or what's going to happen. But I think, you know, there have been a lot of people, and these are the people I generally listen to, who have looked back and said, all right, here's what we got wrong. Here's the lessons we've learned. Here's what we need to do for the future. And I think that's the conversation we need to be having, not so much throwing blame around it at both sides, you know, the sides that underreacted and the sides that overreacted, but saying, all right, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? What's sustainable? What will the American people put up with? And how does that inform our future strategies? Yeah. And as you've explained to me, and I want to use this as the bullet point for our conversation, with Michael Siegel today, any science that doesn't admit where it's right and wrong and reviews itself, that ain't science anymore. So appreciate your insight on all this, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you on social media, where they can get that great writing, where they can look up that interview with the vampire via astronomy. See, I said it right there that time, and I didn't even have to use the Blue Oyster Cult song for it. Let folks know where they can find you, my friend. Uh, basically, just go to ordinary-times.com. That's uh, where I, I do most of my writing, and it has links to my YouTube and uh, Twitter accounts and everything I write up there. That's uh, just, I, I like to keep things simple and go through one outlet uh, so you can find where I am. And we're very, very thankful to have him. He's the kind of people we love to have and to discuss things. He has great insight, good guy, and also a Twitter Supper Club member in good standing. We look forward to you getting back to cooking soon, my friend. I know it's been a little crazy at your house lately, um, but you do good work, sir, and we appreciate your time very much. Well, I, I, you're doing great work on the show. and glad to be on here. Yep. You're going to keep being a regular because you make me look smart. So talk to you soon, my friend, Michael Siegel. Talk to you next time, sir. All right. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 support your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.